Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. on the subtleties and the differences between Dallas and Fort Worth, <laughs> which is a foreigner I'm not sensitive to. Um, I would like to tell you I'm not from New York, I'm from the Bronx. <laughs> and I don't want to tell you what I think about people from New York in another place, Brooklyn. <laughs> and that kind of hostility sets the stage for talking about the Middle East, and that was the segue I got right there. Um, my book, The Next Hundred Years, was a wonderful idea because in no way could anyone hold me responsible while I'm alive. <laughs> the publishing industry being what it is, they required a book called The Next Decade. And indeed, if my editor had his choice, I'd have it the next year, the next week, and the next minute, I'm done. Uh, what I want to talk about today, however, is part of the next decade. Um, We've had a crisis in what I'll call the Arab world, which is the way to put it, because it's North Africa and the Persian Gulf. Now I'd like to spend some time trying to explain to you what we think is happening, which is not exactly what CNN is portraying, but that should be no surprise to anyone. So let me begin. First, in North Africa, we have a bunch of old thieves. I'll be subtle about this. You have Ben Ali in Tunisia, who took power in 1987. You have Hosni Mubarak, who took power in 1981. And you have Muammar Gaddafi, who took power in 1969. And the basic rule in these countries is if these people or their friends don't own it, it isn't worth owning because they have accumulated huge amounts of wealth. Ben Ali wanted to make his son-in-law president of Tunisia, essentially to protect the vast amounts of wealth that the family and friends hold, because if somebody from outside this group takes over, they might freeze their bank accounts and switch them to something like that, which is what they do with Mubarak. They fought tenaciously because they were fighting for a huge amount of money. And the rising did have some students involved and young people, right? They did Twitter, but it had very little connection to reality. Uh, there weren't that many students out there. There weren't that many young people. But they all, the ones who were there were university students, and they spoke English. And since the reporters in the West only speak English and never, don't, don't speak Arabic, they would only interview the people who spoke English, who would tell them that we want to live as if we lived in Minnesota, and what we yearn to be is American liberal Democrats. And it's true for these people. They just weren't running anything. The Ben Ali rising, of course, has turned into a huge feud in the elite of who's going to take things over. 
So let's talk about the book of Diaz Mubarak. Hosni Mubarak was under pressure from the military for over a year to resign. The military wanted him out for two reasons. He was old, he had cancer, and they wanted an orderly succession. Mubarak decided that he wanted his son Gamal to become president. He wanted his son Gamal to become president for the reasons that you can imagine, money, security, the family, and so on. The military was appalled. One, he had not served in uniform a day. And two, uh, he was 47, which was awfully young for someone to become president of Egypt. Egypt has a government, a regime, that was established in the 1950s by Donald Abdel Nasser. It has as its core principle the same principle that Kamala Turk established in Turkey, which is the military is the most modern, most progressive, and best organized element in the, in the country. That there's no other element that can modernize it. And so they built the regime on the military. This was not a military coup designed to oppress the people. This was a military organization designed to modernize the country. And it had three presidents. It had Nasser, who then died of a heart attack, and then Sadat, who then died of assassination, and then Mubarak. And the military's intention was to create an other person to replace Mubarak, who many in the military felt had stolen more than good taste permitted, and replace him with another officer who would take off his uniform and become president. And that was the plan. And Mubarak wouldn't move. He was afraid of losing everything. And he wouldn't move, and he wouldn't move. Suddenly, there were demonstrators in the square. Now, we looked at satellite photos. And we counted based on that. And you know, you say hundreds of thousands of people. Well, there were maybe 150, 200,000 at the top. They all fit into the square, that's how you can tell. They didn't spill out from the square, they were in the square. And for a city the size of Cairo, that's not much. And yes, a lot of them twittered. But when they twittered, they were also informing the secret police where they were going to meet. So that's a really dumb way to communicate. But they weren't arrested. And that was the interesting thing. That was the dog that didn't bark. The police, the first day, did beat them. Um, the army came in, disarmed the police, and guarded the entrance. You saw the pictures of the camels coming in. Like, this is a great story. Everybody was furious with the students, especially the tour guide operators. Because anybody running a tour service was basically had no business. And if you've been to Cairo, you get to ride a camel around the pyramids. And these guys drove their camels into the square to beat the living daylights and these guys were killing their business. And CNN picked this up as the regime attempting to do this. Well, if you look at the satellite photos real carefully, and some other photos we had, 
you could see the name of the tour guide operator. <laughs> and this is important to understand how bad international coverage has become. They can't afford to send these people overseas. And they send people who went to journalism school. Journalism is great, but it doesn't teach you language. And I don't care who you are, you cannot cover the Arab world without speaking Arabic. I mean, you can have bar drinks in the Hilton, yeah, that'll do it. You can get dates with other reporters, but you can't cover it. Because you won't know that, no, this isn't Mubarak sending in camels. These are the tour guide operators. And if you talk to the tour guide operators, they're saying, why do these idiot kids go home and let the tourists come back and I'm losing money? The military had tremendous support for the rest of the country, <coughs> who were not happy with this. Now, example is Columbia students rise up and block traffic in midtown Manhattan. Response to Columbia students, construction workers beat them up, whatever. But they were protected by the Army. The Army used them for exactly the purpose they wanted, to get Mubarak out of there. Mubarak wouldn't go. He went, he stood up, he made a speech, he was supposed to resign, he said, I'm not resigning. One day, I don't know how this happened, a conversation was held with someone, and he was persuaded that he really wanted to resign. And they put him on a plane to Sharm el-Sheikh, and he resigned. <coughs> the military, in the spirit of democracy, then appointed a three-person junta, all the very senior officers, suspended the Constitution, suspended Parliament, and the New York Times announced that this was a great democratic rising. <laughs> We're now in a situation where, <laughs> it's a real question, do they plan to hold elections? And the answer is yes, they're going to hold elections. And somebody that they can control is going to take power. <laughs> and life will go on. Because the military is the only viable organization in the country, and they're not letting go. Because now somebody else is trying to take the works money. Very similar thing happened in uh, Libya. You may have noticed that Gaddafi is a little strange. <laughs> this is not a joke. He used to have a, he called it a battalion of bodyguards, all women, dressed in black latex. He really did. And people in my business would fight for the opportunity to see this. You know, who would get the cover of Mubarak? Uh, I, should, I should say Gaddafi, because it was quite a sight. And they were all like over six feet tall, and you know, some of the guys, this is major fantasy time. <laughs> so, Mubarak was strange, and from my point of view, after 1987, I never wanted to think about him again. I used up my Gaddafi potion. But here he was again. And what was the issue? He wanted to appoint one of his sons president. And the other people didn't want him to appoint his son president because they, he had stolen so much that you know, it was time to really do something about it. And so now you are in a civil war. The American option in this civil war is nothing. 
we won't have any men for a third war. Especially not to guarantee the delivery of natural gas from Libya to Italy. Let the Italians go to war. We're not. But at any point, this gives us an opportunity to tell the NATO allies who have been so helpful that we support any intervention you make in, in Libya. And later, we will condemn you for the brutal way you've treated people. It'll be a nice turn. Will the United States go in? We may provide some support, some special forces. But this is going to end in somebody going in because Gaddafi is much stronger than the media base in Peru. And his opposition is fighting each other because they really want to know who's going to be in charge. Bottom line here is North Africa is not what it appears to be. There is no democratic rising. There are some guys talking about democracy. In Egypt, we have seen a military coup imposing a junta. And they may hold elections or not. There may be enough uprising, but I don't know where it comes from. Because in Egypt, the thing you want to see, which you saw in 1979 in Iran, was that the shopkeepers and the workers went out there. And the army split. And that's how Khomeini came to power. Well, that didn't happen in Egypt. Didn't come close to it. In Tunisia, it's an old family feud. In, Iraq, in Libya, it's basically a tribal battle. Why now? Because all of these countries had really old men who were very sick. And they all had it at the same time, and everybody was worried about the future of hope. Then you get to the Persian Gulf, which is a very different situation, and a much more serious one. The United States is in the process of withdrawing from Iraq. We now have 50,000 troops there. They are not combat capable, either in their specialties or in their deployment. Uh, my son's in the Air Force. He's a very nice guy. And they're considering sending him to train. He's in Space Command. They don't have any satellites. I have no idea where he's supposed to train them. But he's certainly would feign that somebody shot at him. We don't have a force. Now, for Iran, this is a golden moment. This is the dream that predates the Islamic Republic, but goes back to the Shah of being the dominant force in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf. Remember this, without the United States there, or without a foreign power there, the Iranian military is the largest and most effective military force in the region, in the Persian Gulf region. No combination of military force can block the Persians, the Iranians, if the United States leaves. The Iraqis are acutely aware of this fact, which is why Maliki is operating a government that is increasingly pro-Iranian, which is why Muqtadar al-Sadr was reinserted into Iraq. Just prep the stage. We leave, Iran dominates Iraq. And Iraq is the most strategic country in the Middle East. It borders Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Syria, Turkey, 
Iran, obviously. If Iraq is dominated by the Iranians, they can reach out and touch anyone. And the most interesting people they want to touch are the Saudis. The Saudis became a power in the region because the British made them a power. And then the Americans supported that power. The Iranian position is, this is an unnatural condition in the Persian Gulf. We're a country of 80 million. We are the dominant power. We should hold this position. And the only reason that the Iranians don't hold this position is foreigners, the British and the Americans, block us. This was not just Khomeini's position. This was also the Shah's position. And he was constantly fighting with the Saudis. They are now facing a historic opportunity of unprecedented proportions in their point of view. First, the United States has destroyed their historic enemy, Iraq. And they fought a war in the 1980s that cost them a million dead. A country of 80 million lost a million dead in this war. For them, this is an obsession. And who supports the Iranian government? The veterans, the equivalent of the VFW. The guys who fought that war, bled in that war, and felt that victory was stolen from them and want payback. And they love Ahmadinejad. They love him standing up to the UN and assassinating the United States. They love building nuclear weapons. And the idea that there's a mass rising against the Iranian government is a fantasy of the BBC. We had a huge fight with the BBC. Because they said in 2009, this is a democratic rising that we've never seen. Once again, they were polling the students of Columbia University, the University of Tehran, and not looking at who their enemies were, which are all the veterans, all the peasants, all the religious out in the, in the boondocks, and all the shopkeepers that they kept from doing business. They shut them down hard. And they tried to pop up again last week, so they just took the two presidential candidates and put them on ice. And that could mean two things, and we'll see which one they decided to do. Now, they are right at the point where the U.S. has no influence in Iraq. <coughs> and they're probing. And the country they're probing most is Bahrain. Now, why is that important? First, Bahrain has a majority, overwhelming Shiite population. Its royal family was imposed on them by the Saudis and the British, and they're Sunni. And the United States Fifth Fleet uses Bahrain as a basic point. And is connected to Saudi Arabia by a causeway. In fooling with Bahrain, they're threatening the fundamental interests of Saudi Arabia. There are four countries to watch aside from Saudi Arabia. Kuwait, Bahrain, of course, Oman, and Qatar. Oman has the main base of the Fifth Fleet. Qatar has Central Command. Kuwait has the Striker Brigade that we're going to leave behind. Bahrain has the fleet and the connection. And all of these are popping. And this is totally unlike what's happening in North Africa. 
It is part of a strategic move by the Iranians. Now, in all these things, it is not simply the Iranians doing it, nor is it simply indigenous forces rising up. It is a combination of the two feeding on each other. The indigenous forces need outside support, and at the same time, uh, the Iranians want the indigenous forces to be doing what they're doing. The dream for the Iranians is that they destabilize Saudi Arabia, which is why the Saudis arrested a Shiite cleric yesterday, two days ago. It was signaled by the Saudis that their Olympsal will go. The Saudis have always been very careful not to mess with the Shiites, to benefit the Shiites, because the Shiites happen to occupy the Northeast, which is worth a lot of the oil. They can't afford an uprising there. And what the Iranians are trying to do is position themselves in the region, the fundamental foundation of the U.S. military in the region after Iraq is destabilized, while simultaneously opening the possibility of this rising spreading into Saudi Arabia. This is, for the Iranians, a low-risk, high-return operation. What do they risk? The Saudis don't like them. The Saudis don't like them anyway. But if they can destabilize Saudi Arabia, they can enter into negotiations with Saudi Arabia. They can say to the Saudis, look, it's not just that the Americans are leaving. It's also a question that we can destabilize you. Let's have a discussion. And what do they want to discuss? The Iranian National Oil Company would absolutely love to help you develop these oil fields. We would definitely like to talk about OPEC quotas. We would love to have Saudi investment come into Iran to build refineries and develop our fields. And oh, by the way, that means we won't invade you. Because Please take a look at the map. We're a three-day drive from your oil fields. The Americans have a striker brigade in Kuwait, but all hell's breaking, around, breaking out around them. And an M1 Abrams tank can operate for about 100 hours in a combat situation without needing overhaul. One striker brigade can't reach that far. So, why don't you, my brother, think about exactly what you want your future to consist of? It is a beautiful move by the Saudis. It was something I have to say we predicted. We didn't. We knew that they had these assets in the eastern part of of the Arabian Peninsula. They have now mobilized them, and they're operating. It is extremely difficult to put down the Bahrain rising. The Bahrainis want a lot, and the Iranians are insisting that they be demanding a lot. They're repeating their demands. The Saudis can come in and open fire, which opens the door for the Iranians to respond militarily to end the atrocities. The Saudis can try to negotiate with them. The Bahrainis will reject any given their position under Iranian influence. The Saudis can get into them and try to back off, but who knows what the response of the Shiites inside of Saudi Arabia is going to be. 
We're now facing a historical turning point. That's the consequence of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The point of the U.S. invasion of Iraq was, as a reasonable set of points was, one, destroy the Iraqi army, done. Destroy the Baathist regime, done. Create a strong pro-American regime in Baghdad, not done. Why not done? Because Iranian intelligence had penetrated Iraq before the war to such an extent that they could destabilize any government that was built, that they didn't approve of. They have negative control. The United States is now withdrawing. That withdrawal leaves no force around it but Iraq. In the long run, the counter to Iran is going to be Turkey. Turkey is the largest economy in the region and has the most powerful military in Europe. Maybe the Brits could fight them, maybe not. I'd love to see the war. <laughs> but I don't get a chance. The Turks do not want to get involved in Iraq. They saw it as a chump's move from the beginning, and they're just not going to play. But they do not want to see the Iranians deployed along their southern border. They do not want to see the Iranians with a continual line of supply into Syria. Uh, they really don't want to see Jordan falling under Iranian influence. So when you think about all these things, the Turks are going to have to move, but not necessarily in our timeline, and not necessarily protect the American military position in the region. In the very worst case scenario that I don't imagine, you have rising Kuwait, you have rising the Bahrain, Oman, Gutter, with the net result that US forces in the Persian Gulf are expelled. And our next stop, of course, is Yemen, just outside, and that doesn't look too good either. So what you have here are two sets of separate events, perhaps triggered by, in terms of timing, by what was going on. The North African events are very different, having much more to do with internal politics and much fewer geopolitical consequences. You know, the military is in control in Egypt. They made it clear that their relationship with the United States and Israel will remain the same. They're not going to shift that. The Libyans are six million people. And what energy they have is not trivial, but is not going to tilt the balance of power. Tunisia is not a player. You shift over to the Persian Gulf, and you are dealing with about, and you can debate what it is, 40% of the world's export oil goes out of the Straits of Hormuz. The nuclear weapon that Iran has is closing the Straits of Hormuz with mines and silkworm missiles. I had my staff study the question of what would be the consequence of closing the Straits of Hormuz on oil. And they looked at it for three weeks and came back and said the price would go up. <laughs> I love those guys. <laughs> the intel world is a wonderful place. Yeah, I know though. How much? Who knows? But I can tell you one thing. It will abort the global recovery. Closure of that particular outlet is going to push the prices into the $500 barrel range. It's got to. I mean, that's a lot of oil going offline. And between that and speculators, that's where it goes. 
So what is the United States not going to do? Anything that cuts off the flow of oil through the Straits of Hormuz. The Iranians have played a brilliant game with their nuclear weapons, getting everybody focused on this nuclear weapon as if it mattered. What were the Iranians going to do with a nuclear weapon? Well, Ahmadinejad stood up and looked like a crazed man. You know, we're going to bomb this, we're going to bomb that. They're going to bomb anything. They had played a rational hand, patiently, carefully, and effectively, and have now put the United States in a terrific bind. We can do nothing that threatens the flow of oil. We cannot engage on the ground. And we can't move into a situation where the Saudis are going to open fire on demonstrators. All options are off the table. There are two options for the United States in the region. One is an air war with Iran. First designed to destroy their navy, which sometimes consists of a little rubber raft that can contain a mine. And very deadly from our point of view. The problem is, and my son in the Air Force assures me that there is no question but that the Air Force can, without any problem, handle this matter. My daughter, who's in the Army, she's in Army Intelligence major, tries to strangle her brother on a regular basis. Because every time he makes one of these promises, she winds up in the mud somewhere <laughs> with mortar shells coming around her. You can try to bomb them. You can try to decimate them from the air, but don't screw up. Really important part of the plan. Do not fail. Because then you're going to have a really, really big problem. The other thing the United States can do is reach out to the Iranians and do what Nixon did with Mao and Roosevelt did with Stalin. Maybe. How do the Iranians look at us, view us? That's the important part. They see us as incredibly powerful and completely crazy. They are still trying to figure out why we went to war in Kosovo. Their view of the United States is we are so powerful that we're unpredictable and irrational in our execution of foreign policy. We invade Haiti. We're suddenly in Liberia. They can't figure what we do. Now, if you, ladies and gentlemen, ever play poker, that's not a bad hand to be sitting in. You do not want to be seen as the only rational player at the table. So we look at the Iranians as crap. They look at us as nuts. This is the basis of a good relationship. <laughs> it is unthinkable that we negotiated with the evil empire. It's unthinkable in Iran that they negotiate with the great Satan. But they can't be sure what we'll do. And they have known, and one of the things they say is, never set the American tiger too much. You just don't know what he's going to do. We don't know what the Iranians are going to do. If we both calculate worst case, what do they want? They want to make sure they have no threat ever again from Iraq. <laughs> Two, they want a redefinition of oil coming out of the Persian Gulf and a dominant position at the table as the largest native power of the region. 
What do we want? We want to get away from Iraq and want to make sure the oil comes out at a reasonable price. Our historic strategy on this has been to be pro-Saudi. Rely on Saudi Arabia to provide this. It is becoming increasingly questionable whether we can rely on the Saudis to this. We talk about friendship and international relations and our friendship with Saudi Arabia. There is no friendship in international relations. Continental and United didn't merge because they were friends. I mean, as in business, friendship is one thing, but it's not about friendship. I have friends, well, at least a few, but Saudi Arabia is an increasing liability to the United States because it is limiting the options we have in dealing with the major power in the region. The Saudis know this. They're scared to death. And therefore, they're reaching out to the Turks to talk to the Americans. And the Turks' telephone is ringing, and they're not picking up the phone. The Saudis are frightened, and they have limited options. We are now in a position where things that we took granted for 100 years in the Persian Gulf are no longer going to be valid. The Iranians have reached the point they can tilt the balance of power, whether we like it or not. And therefore, we are now at a position where we have some strategic decisions to make ourselves. And one of the things about what my book is about is we're not really good at making strategic decisions. We don't back off and think very clearly about the consequences of what we're going to do. We're an excitable people, and I'll be very frank, uh, our public discourse consists of small minorities yelling slogans at each other. Our public is not particularly sophisticated, and this is a very sophisticated time. So the statement, how can we do this with the Iranians, will be mouthed by both sides. The left will say they violate human rights. Yep. Uh, the right will say they're Islamic extremists. You got it. Now, what's your move? And the problem we have is we're out of moves. And that's what the significance of this event is. What we have seen for the past few weeks is not about a democratic uprising using Facebook in Egypt. Different story. Different play. This is about, and Hillary Clinton spoke about this yesterday and mentioned it. Uh, this is about Iran making its move that was inevitably following the US withdrawal from Iraq. In the meantime, we're trying to build democracy in Afghanistan. <laughs> Let me stop there and ask some questions, please. Israel can't do anything with Iran, it has an army of 250,000 operation. Okay, they've got 250,000 other men my age who can do God knows what. But they have an army at the extreme of 250. They don't have the logistical capability of sending 4,000 miles, which is the distance. Uh, Israel's air force could carry out one strike in, in, in the region. It could not carry out an air campaign. Uh, Israel is suddenly coming face to face with the limits of power. While everything was quiet, 
and Egypt was settled down, Israel's fundamental national security issue was building condominiums in Jerusalem. Uh, that really isn't the issue right now. So the Israeli strategy is, I'm just a little black rain cloud hovering over the honey tree. Please pay no attention to me. The way the Pooh song. They're out of it. When I was a young lad, centuries ago, the most expensive part of, of intelligence was transmitting information from the field to headquarters. The type of equipment you had to have was so expensive and so complex that only a nation state could do it. In 1999, I covered the Kosovo War using hotmail. In other words, I can now have conversations with sources as secure as it was 30 years ago off of, off a Gmail account. It's not Facebook that matters. Very little information is available on the internet. It used to be a lot, but people have gotten to realize that people read the information and they're pulling the good stuff. So you're back at the old place where you have to have people on the ground speaking the language, um, looking harmless, and you have to have a way for them to, to communicate. Um, used to be that I would spend a tremendous amount of time, a tremendous amount of money, look at my Blackberry. Here it is. Here's our communication system for agents in the field. If you're really good, you get a laptop too. Go and be wise. Yeah, it's made it a lot easier. Sure, uh, there's security problems, but there were security. You never knew the other side was listening to your, your satellite bounce anyway. It was always confusing. So you've got the same problem, and but it costs a lot less. And with the job market, what it is, you know, what if you lose an agent? Not true. You care a lot about the people. <laughs> You mentioned uh, Hillary Clinton. My question um, is, does the White House understand what you understand about this situation? I hope so. You know, it was interesting the WikiLeaks. What I got from the WikiLeaks is that our government people were a lot smarter than they looked. Now, anyone was a lot smarter than they looked. But what you read, when you really read it, and we read it, you know, everything that was available, is a level of sophistication that I really not encountered before. They understood what was going on. Does the National Command Authority <laughs> integrate what their teams are saying on the ground? And do they have a plan? Obama's strategy, I mean, remember, he came into a difficult position. His strategy has been to have a non-aggressive foreign policy in an attempt to extract ourselves from an imbalanced position. So when the Russians invaded Georgia, we had no troops to do anything about it. That's why they did it. To try to find some way to rebalance the system. The problem is that the do no, create no further conflict strategy also has opened the door for other initiatives by other countries. And when we're talking about Iran here, Russia as well. He's walking a tightrope. He has very few military resources. They are stretched to the limit as to what they can do. Um, 
he has a strategy of non-intervention that is rational if everybody sits in their seats long enough to let him get back to where he has to go. And they're not likely to. And we're not going to find out what kind of president he is. First two years, getting hammered as president, Ronald Reagan got hammered as president. Bill Clinton did. That's not a big thing. That's when you learn where the bathroom is. And that's where you learn of the job. We now have to see what he does. What he says in public, you know, praising democracy in Egypt and stuff like that, it's just public statements. What he's going to do in the Persian Gulf, is going to be interesting, has few options. The ones I've laid out, I think, are pretty much them. And we will see if he knows what's going on. This is where he's going to earn his money. You mentioned briefly Yemen. What is the situation in Yemen, and how does it play out in the whole context of everything? Yemen is important both for oil, oil I believe you've heard of it, deeply about. Um, it is also important as a base for growing Al-Qaeda operations. Al-Qaeda and the Iranian Peninsula operates heavily from there, AQAD. The struggle is partly political in the sense that Saudi has been there for a long time, like these other leaders, and a lot of people in his own faction would like to see rotation. It's also complicated by tribal differences, extreme tribal differences. You have, if I were to compare it to anything, I would compare it to Libya <coughs> on a much higher level. It also has the Iranians in it, kind of in sideways in certain areas, and the Saudis have conducted operations deep in the Yemen. It's a flashpoint, but it's a non-critical flashpoint. So a number of bad things can happen to Yemen, and it doesn't have the consequences of bad things happening in Bahrain. Uh, it's a very complicated thing, and we've got troops on the ground. We've got special forces operating there, and CIA doing predator attacks and everything else. It's a mess, but oddly enough, it's a mess that, from the American point of view, is manageable. But if you step back, what you're really seeing is the American position in the Persian Gulf destabilizing. The entire strategy the U.S. has had in place since World War II, up in the air. And all pivots on Iraq. Now, Bob Gates said a few weeks ago, we should reconsider the withdrawal of troops from Iraq. Problem is, that's not enough. Re troops have to be reinserted, the right sort of troops in the right positions and we don't have those troops. And that really is the problem. So in a way, I'll say, I'm not nearly as worried about Yemen as I am about Afghanistan. We've doubled down on Afghanistan, which cuts the bet we can make in Iraq. And therefore, we're vulnerable in what I think is the more important. I think the biggest mistake he made was whatever he thought about the initial invasion of Iraq, he could make good arguments against that. To think that Afghanistan was the more important war than the future of Iraq was, I think, at the root of everything that's happening now. It was a bad call on his part. I understand where it came from politically, but by making that move, we have a huge commitment in Afghanistan, and we don't have resources for Iraq, and that's much more strategic. 
You mentioned the potential for $500 barrel oil, given certain circumstances with the Strait of Hormuz. Largely what we've seen, I guess, over the past couple of weeks with the volatility in oil prices has been due to what I see as press inflation of what's going on in Northern Africa. Uh, in your consideration, is $100 barrel oil sustainable in the short term, or do you think it's more uh, inflationary, I guess, given the press that the North African conflicts have gotten? Um, we had $150 barrel oil at a pretty bad time, and it was magical. Um, speculators will make and lose money. Not my concern. Uh, it'll really the question is: Does the market understand uh, the significance of what's happening in the Persian Gulf? I think if the market did understand it, the price would be higher. But then I've never made money in the stock market at all because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, my view is that everybody's transfixed on Libya and any's exports and things like that. And that's pretty much to me not an issue compared to this other issue. So I take a somewhat different point of view, but I also have to say that in the short run, markets are stupid. I mean, they're like wildebeests. In the long run, you can tell a lot of in the short run, I mean, if you ask me why, what reasoning is involved by 100,000 people making the market, I don't know. Uh, it should be up. I would guess it should be up more. And the more goes up, the more pressure there is in the president to create a solution, and the more difficult it is to create the solution was the more leverage the Iranians have. Now, who's, by the way, really happy in all this? The Russians. Oh, uh, the Russians rushed natural gas to the Italians. This is a chance to grab market share, show reliability. The price gets jacked up. They get more money. This is, from the Russians' point of view, good stuff. Are they behind it? It's even sweeter. They don't have to be behind it. And so, I mean, that's the one country. Watch Germany. I mean, they are really dependent on the Russians. Thank you, Dr. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.